Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, you're going to have to reset the how many days has it's been since a high-ranking government official was found to have inadvertently retained classified information. We're going to have to reset that cat, that uh, number of days back to zero after yesterday's disclosure by former Vice President Mike Pence that uh, there were a couple of boxes of materials with classified markings that were found in his home in Carmel, Indiana, and uh, turned over to the FBI a few days ago, like January 19th, just last week. Uh, inadvertently placed there. We've heard that before. Uh, Mike Pence uh, gave an interview back in the fall at the height of the Trump hysteria over classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. This was with David Muir of ABC News, in which Pence said the following. you take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I I did not. Um, Do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents, particularly if they were in an unprotected area. Mm -hmm. And so he had classified documents in an unprotected area. Vice President Pence, according to his counsel letter uh, to the FBI from his counsel, was unaware of the existence of sensitive or classified documents at his personal residence. a uh, letter, uh, additional letter says Pence agreed to send the archives four boxes of other papers to ensure they did not contain any original documents that could qualify as presidential records. And Mr. Pence's personal copies and effects would then be returned uh, after the archives makes their own determination on what does and does not constitute classified information. Uh, so, boy, we're going to run out of special counsels pretty soon. Right, Merrick Garland? A point the Wall Street Journal makes about uh, a special counsel for Trump and then a special counsel for Biden. And now what are we going to have a special counsel for Pence? This seems to be um, less uh, problematic than the form the two former presidents. But regardless, once you set the standard, how do you not continue to abide it? Also, the idea that these special counsels and these investigations will lead to any sort of criminal prosecution I mean, how unlikely is that? Uh, maybe it's time to have a larger conversation, as other commentators have suggested. I guess one about the just the amount of information that is given a classified designation. Uh, you know, the, all this talk of means and methods, means and methods. That's those are the real national secrets of import lest our enemies figure out how and why we do things and where our resources are deployed and what we intend to do with them. Sure, in real time, 
that uh, that's something that you would want to jealously guard. I understand that. But so much classified information is so stale. You know, it has long ago lost its relevance. And that happens increasingly quickly, particularly in the cyber age, where so much even of our means and methods is clearly known by our enemies. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. You know, I guess we're, we're, we're going to have to search uh, Pompeo's house next and anybody else running for president in 2024. Uh, now, uh, interesting comment, though, just in this uh, context of classified information and the handling of it and all the Chris's and the crosses. On uh, Morning Joe... Jen Psaki, former White House spokesman, she preceded uh, the quadruple threat KJP, you may recall. And now MSNBC is paying her a lot of money to provide uh, her snarky banalities. Uh, Psaki said this about what she's looking for next as we go down this road of investigations into the handling of classified information and the and frankly the uh, the uh, exhaustive search for more classified information we may have to go to the ends of the earth with all the politicians running around that had access to classified information at one point or time in their careers and you know, treat it like Milton treats, treats as a swing line stapler um here's Jen uh, look, Mika, I'm really looking at what's next with these documents in the White House. I, I think we've learned a lot over the past couple of weeks of what actually happened here. There's still some head-scratching things, like why they didn't search all of yeah. Biden's homes. But I do think they're starting to get on better footing. The question to me is, are there more documents, and are they going to keep mm -hmm. being uh, aggressive and front and center here as they've been over the last week? That's really an interesting comment. Why didn't they search all of Biden's homes, right. considering the source, his former spokesbeing? His beach house there. Why didn't they search his other homes? And uh, if I can expand, why didn't they search the homes of Hunter and uh, uh, and the and uh, the bro, uh, the bros as well? Right. Right. That's a good point. Well, that maybe but, they are. I but. Don't know. I think, it's on their list. I, I think we would know. I don't know. The, the, I think we'd know if they found documents back on November 2nd, and we didn't know until recently. Yeah, well, uh, it's a little bit more difficult to uh, cover now that it's out in the open. The uh, The interesting thing to those who think that this is uh, the, the Democrats, sort of uh, the Obama world, moving Joe to the sidelines, whether he wants to go to the sidelines or not, is the source of that comment she almost almost goading the FBI into searching more the other Biden homes uh, uh chastising them for not doing so with her with with her open-ended question his former white house spokesperson yeah she kind of turned on him there which and it, it sort of suggests that maybe she believes there there is or certainly the FBI should look at. And let's extend the story just as the Biden administration is trying to pivot away from it best they can. Very interesting. Marty in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, first of all, it's not KGP. Her name's Karen Peters, um, but it's cool for this Korean. I just like 
this Col- Colbert's guy on TV at night. His name is not Colbert. It's Colbert, but it's not cold being American. Anyway, Dan, I want to ask you my know. I was cleaning my garage out, and I found some documents. Can you tell me what to do with them? Yeah. And I'm sure I- a lot of other people have them, too, and I just don't know. What to do. I wish I'd turn them over to a Right. Yeah. Put them in a safe so, first. Yes, put them in a safe and call National Archives and then the FBI. You're going to want to retain counsel, have oh, yeah. them have go through attorneys. it, uh, have them uh, fire off a couple of letters summarizing what you think you have, how it was inadvertently placed in your garage, and um, uh, how you're turning these things over to the National Archives. And you welcome the FBI in to investigate your home. And to answer uh, Psaki's question, yeah. why haven't they... Uh, why, why haven't they you know, poured over the other Biden residences? Well, because they haven't been invited. Oh, that's right. The FBI doesn't raid a, a Biden residence. It uh, is invited. doesn't ask either. It is invited to come in. And if they're not invited to come in, they're not going to come in. 312-642-5600, turnkey Depro pro answer line. You can also reach us all morning long on our text line. Six four six three six. Type in DA. Then a quick comment. Jim and Sheboygan. Yeah, the real the real trove of documents for Biden are at the, at his old university. I think it's University of Delaware. Um, people were trying to get at all of his uh, old documents um, prior to the twenty twenty election, and uh, he had them hidden there. And obviously, people were interested in, in some of the sexual harassment and assault charges against them to get a, get a hold of the documents. But that's where but all of, most of Joe's documents are being held. Yeah, I, what, what, what are these documents? We, yeah, we, we have no idea. We, th- thanks to the culture. We, the, all these documents that are so sensitive. You know what? Maybe they're not so sensitive. Yeah. And, 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 and this idea, you know, we, we operate under, we've talked about this before just in terms of the cyber world. We operate under this fiction of privacy. Oh, in an era where everybody is making a big data play, every big data, big data, big data, gathering and synthesizing and and segregating data for the purposes of, you know, manipulating for whatever your particular the ends of, of your particular organization are. You don't have privacy. You're not getting it. Oh, oh, my God. Uh, how many hacks of how many corporations and all their members, you know, their membership or their cardholders or their subscribers and so on and so forth. Uh, all this site, you know, we're talking about cybersecurity and these unindicted uh, foreign nationals who hack this and who hack that in Russia and China. I mean, uh, what is it exactly we're really protecting? The only documents that are secret have nothing to do with what these dum-dums, for the most part, do in their roles in government for the most part, particularly after they've done them. It, it's the only thing that's interesting is like um, getting to the heart of the influence peddling operation that Biden Inc. was perhaps engaged in that Jim Comer was talking about the other day on Mar- Maria Bartiroma show we discussed on Monday. That, that that's that's what's interesting is how they're leveraging the information for personal gain if they're doing so how if they're compromising assets in the field if they're disclosing things to the, our enemies that they otherwise don't have it's not that they're, they're in possession of you know thousands of pages of nothingness about the machinery of government on a daily basis 
So that's, that's a whole nother conversation about all the things that we don't know. And, and it's all this cloak and dagger stuff. There's probably more interesting information about our nation's secrets in a Tom Clancy novel than in Mike Pence's or Joe Biden or even Donald Trump's possession. Who knows? Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630, and learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, one additional comment on the uh, discussion we were having about uh, Mike Pence documents, classified documents being found at Mike Pence's home in Carmel, Indiana. Donald Trump's response to the news of... of to this news. Mike Pence is an innocent man. He never did anything knowingly dishonest in his life. Leave him alone. I know. Everybody, well, he's such a goody two-shoes and such a nice man. Even John King said he didn't want to pick on former Vice President Mike Pence. He kind of like reluctantly played the audio <clears throat> of him with David Muir on ABC News. So, but yeah, Pat, I mean, Trump, I, that's... Uh, huh, maybe they're getting the band back together. Yeah, yeah maybe. We'll see. Reunited uh, and it feels so good. All right, Kevin McCarthy had a little presser last evening. Talk about uh, a few matters uh, as uh, they get to the business of government in the House. Uh, one is this brewing contretemps between uh, McCarthy and the D.C. press corps over his removal of noxious Democrat socialists Adam Schiff and Eric Honeypot Swalwell from the House Intel Committee and uh, virulent anti-Semite uh, Ilhan Omar, one of the socialist Spice Girls, as you know, uh, brotherly love Spice, if I recall, uh, from her committee as well. McCarthy was peppered again with questions about that. It's just political. It's because uh, Pelosi... Uh, removed Major Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene and so on and so on. This is just uh, retribution. Bad, yeah. And um, no, McCarthy offered a version of a response uh, he gave last week that we played, uh, pretty strident, and I think on point. This is what he had to say. You just raised a question. I'm going to be very clear with you. The Intel Committee is different. You know why? Because what happens in the Intel Committee, you don't know. What happens in the Intel Committee, although the secrets are going on in the world, 
other members of Congress don't know. What did Adam Schiff do as the chairman of the Intel Committee? What Adam Schiff did, use his power as a chairman and lie to the American public. Even the inspector general said it. When Devin Nunes put out a memo, he said it was false. When we had a laptop, he used it before an election to be politics and say that it was false and said it was the Russians. When he knew different, when he knew the intel, if you talk to um, John Radcliffe, DNI, he came out ahead of time and says there's no intel to prove that, and he used his position as chairman, knowing he has information the rest of America does not, and lied to the American public. When a whistleblower came forward, he said he, he did not know the individual, even though his staff had met with him and set it up. So no, he does not have a right to sit on that. But I will not be like Democrats and play politics with these, where they removed Republicans from committees and all committees. So yes, he can serve on a committee, but he will not serve on intel, because it goes to the national security of America, and I will always put them first, all right? And if you want to talk about Swalwell, let's talk about Swalwell, because you have not had the briefing that I had. I had the briefing, and Nancy Pelosi had the briefing from the FBI. The FBI never came before this Congress to tell the leadership of this Congress that Eric Swalwell had a problem with a Chinese spy until he served on intel. So it wasn't just us who were concerned about it. The FBI was concerned about putting a member of Congress on the intel committee that has the rights to see things that others don't because of his knowledge and relationship with a Chinese spy. They brought it to the works of the leaders. I've got that briefing. So I do not believe he should sit on there. That committee? And I believe there's 200 other Democrats that can serve on that committee. So this has nothing to do with Santos. Santos is not on the Intel Committee. But you know what? Those voters elected Schiff, even though he lied. Those voters elected Swalwell, even though he lied to the American public, too. So you know what? I'll respect his voters, too, and they'll serve on committees. But they will not serve on a place that has national security reverence because integrity matters to me. That's the answer to your question. Wow. That's, that's a pretty good answer. Yes. It's a pretty good answer. And it also raises the uh, the issue, again, against the backdrop of all this classified document handling business. You know, which is actually more important? Which is actually more relevant? If anything deserves a special prosecutor, it's uh, Adam Schiff and company. The Russian collusion hoax, the pathological lying by Adam Schiff, uh, you know, essentially, on talk about Russian collusion, on behalf of a Russian government that would like to destabilize America. What the, is, is what Adam Schiff and people like Swalwell was just a toady of his and of got, got suckered by a Chinese communist honeypot because he's a dope. Yeah, and he's been um, compromised. So, so is that more important then uh, a couple of boxes, a few boxes of classified documents, although we don't know the nature of those documents, but it's Mike Pence in Mike Pence's house or even Biden or even Trump, depending on what actually the contents are. They're certainly not in real time the way Adam Schiff's conduct and Eric Swalwell's conduct was in real time over the last several years. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Text us at 64636, type in. DA, then a quick comment. I'm also glad he mentioned it was an FBI briefing that he and Nancy Pelosi received from the FBI. And, of course, Nancy Pelosi got that briefing and decided to keep Swalwell on the House Intel Committee. Of course she did, because it's all politics. Yeah. It has nothing to do with national security. And he was, you know, one of the useful idiots to go on to cable 
uh, shows for useful idiots to repeat the talking points of Adam Schiff. And did they this, ever question him about his his uh, spy girlfriend? Swallow when he was doing when he was doing the work for the Democratic yeah, the Party. Honeypot, the honeypot, right? The, honeypot, the Chinese right. communist no. uh, honeypot, right? Yeah, no one exactly. About it. And uh, you know, and now Nancy Pelosi's back in San Francisco, having to literally exercise the demons from her home. Did you know, see that? I know a lot of people do that. That have murders or multiple murders or attacks in their homes. They have a priest come in, and you know. Get rid of the demons, Dan. Really? When when their husband gets attacked by his gay lover, they have a priest come in? Is that what it, you know a lot of people that have that I same don't know, situation? I don't have the same situation. I'm just oh, saying okay. violent okay. attacks. Yeah. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. After Surf Pro comes in and cleans up all the bloody mess, yeah. they have a peer when your priest husband come in. When your husband has a lover's quarrel with his boyfriend and his boyfriend hits him with a hammer, you have a priest come in to do the exorcism. Sure. She happens all the time. She doesn't think he had a boyfriend, Dan. She's a good. She's a good Catholic. Nancy she Pelosi. Five kids together. It's shocking. Yeah, she's a good Catholic, right? Uh huh. Actually, I mean, an exorcism I haven't been to church, needed. but a padre, I want you to come here and clean out my house of any demons. Uh, an exorcism is definitely needed, but it's uh, not along the lines of what Pelosi thinks. Oh, and by the way, for before uh, any, you know, someone never Trumper or or snowflake out there. Oh, how dare you with the Paul Pelosi and the horrific. Chill out. Relax. It's a very, uh, I don't know what happened. I'm making a joke, but it's a very, very curious story. And we raised all the questions, as did actually a a few fleetingly intrepid reporters, about the story that came from that attack. And it still doesn't much add up for me, but but that's okay. Well, and then Uh, he's going to be silenced because they're not letting him out on bond, and we don't hear his voice yet. The, the attacker to find out his side of the story. I, I, I don't care. Um, Kevin McCarthy, back to Kevin McCarthy. He also tackled the debt ceiling issue, this debt ceiling theater that we go through. And this was less inspired, this response, as far as I'm concerned. This was more conventional. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you hope that you see sort of a paradigm shift in stripping away the facades in D.C., and he did a good job there when it came to Swalwell and Schiff. He did uh, less well when it came to the debt ceiling, the phony debt ceiling imbroglio. We have to have a responsible debt ceiling. I'm not saying never no to a debt ceiling. I'm just saying you hit $31 trillion, 120% of GDP. Your party has been in power for four years. You increased discretionary spending by 30%, $400 billion. I want to look the president in the eye and tell me there's not $1 of wasteful spending in government. Who believes that? The American public doesn't believe that. Our whole government is designed to have compromise. But here's the leader of the free world pounding on a table being irresponsible, say, no, 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 just raise the limit, make us spend more? No, that's not how adults act. That's not how elected officials, that's not how the American public believes their elected officials act. So what I have asked for is to sit down, let's find common ground, and let's eliminate the wasteful spending to protect the hardworking taxpayers and protect the future of America. Does anyone believe that answer from Kevin McCarthy? The 
the attacking, wasteful spending in the context of this phony fight over raising the debt ceiling. One dollar of wasteful spending. Oh, right. Yes. And um, and the common ground here and the compromise language. You know what? Just here's what we would do. Here's what we should do. Here's what we should do on this. Oh, this I want to sit down. I'm gonna, here's what we should do. Tell us what you want to do. The, 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 the generic references to wasteful spending and $31 trillion in debt and who did what when, as if the Republican Party doesn't have almost as much blood on their hands on this topic as do the socialists. I mean, such a conventional hackish response or, 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 or answer to the question on the debt ceiling. I just, you know, that's that's like the 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 tired platitudinous Kevin McCarthy, like every other empty suit in D.C. The better Kevin McCarthy was the one who uh, offered the answer on Schiff and Swalwell. So I, you know, I think it's still an open question how much of the better Kevin McCarthy we're going to get versus the the empty suit Kevin McCarthy. We'll see. We got a little bit of both yesterday, but I mean, make no mistake about it. And the debt ceiling. This is. Government shutdowns, theater, debt ceiling raises, defaults, it, people like Newt Gingrich out there. Oh, my gosh. Well, if Biden really doesn't want to negotiate, then we, we are. We're going to come to a crisis. Give me a break. Just give me a break. How, how many times do people have to fall for these invented crises? The real crisis is the underlying finances of the United States government. That's the real daily real time crisis. But this conversation, these conversations and common ground and compromises and cutting waste. When you're up against the quote unquote government shutdown, the quote unquote debt ceiling limit, you know, the, 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 the obviously ceiling limit uh, redundant. This is this is phony, manufactured, fraudulent Apply the synonym of your choice. And Republicans should be ashamed of themselves for engaging in this rather than doing something different, stripping this away and explaining the theater that this is. And then they're not going to participate. And if anybody in D.C. was actually serious, other than maybe a handful of Republicans who actually understand the budget and can read a balance sheet, you know, we would do these three, four things immediately but we're not going to do that so raise the debt ceiling don't raise the debt ceiling america's going to default oh credit worthiness get out of here get out of here tom blue island john chicago's morning answer and amy you know for two years we had to that damn shift i'd like to strangle him and swallow roaming around making up bs stories about president trump and I'll tell you what, it, the Republicans may not have won what they were supposed to in the last election, but at least they got this uh, House of Representatives control so those two guys can get a kick in their tail just like they deserve. And it reminded me of, uh, Dan, about 72, 73 movie called The Sting, Robert Redford, Paul Newman. Uh, yes. uh, Robert Redford's friend Luther gets killed at the behest of a mobster named Doyle Lonigan, and you know the story. They end up stinging him for a bunch of money, and at the end of the movie, 
Paul Newman asks Robert Redford, he said, does this make up for Luther getting killed? And Robert Redford looks down a little bit. He says, no, it doesn't. Then he wipes his mouth and he laughs a little bit. He says, no, but it's close. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good reference. Thanks for the call, Tom. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, do you struggle with obesity? Are you trying to lose weight? Stop. Just stop. No, no, it's the new year. People made New Year's resolutions to no. lose weight, take better care of themselves. The gyms are packed. Yoga studios filled up. I mean, doesn't matter. It's pointless. Everyone's doing it. Should I tell it's everybody absolute, to go home? It is without point. Yeah, go home. Go okay. home and have a gallon of ice cream and a, and a double cheeseburger, chocolate shake. Yeah. Okay, this is good. Why? What do you that, know that we don't know, Dan? That's not what I know. Okay. Who am I? I'm a layman. I'm not a doctor. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, she is a doctor. She practices at Mass General. She's on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Pediatrician and uh, uh, highly cited doctor, medical professional in the area of obesity. And this is what she told uh, Leslie Stahl. Yeah, she's still alive on 60 Minutes. It's a brain disease. It is? It's a brain disease. And the brain tells us how much to eat and how much to store. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, an obesity doctor at Mass General Hospital, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, says common beliefs about obesity are all wrong. It is your turn to get on that scale. And diet shows, like The Biggest Loser, you lost 128 pounds. are snookering people. If you diet, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you lose weight, right? For many of us, we can go on a diet, something like the biggest loser, right? You mm-hmm. go and you strict people, you make them work out for 10 hours a day, and then you feed them 500 calories. For most people, they will acutely lose weight. But 96% of those participants in the biggest loser regained their weight because their brain worked well. It was supposed to bring them back to store what they needed or what the brain thinks it needs. So willpower, throw that out the window. 
My last patient that I saw today was a young woman who's 39 who struggles with severe obesity. She's been working out five to six times a week consistently. She's eating very little. Her brain is defending a certain set point. A set point, says Dr. Stanford, is a range of weight your brain is in charge of maintaining by controlling how much food you eat and how much of it you store. One theory is that it's an evolutionary survival mechanism that helped retain fat during famines. So we had COVID. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of people gained weight. Do those people have a new set point that's higher now? Absolutely. So when you have a chronic stressor and you get to a certain weight and maintain that weight for, let's say, at least three to six months, then you recalibrate that set point to a different set point. So you understand? So... For example, let, let me make this concrete for you. J.B. Pritzker, yeah. he comes from a long line of Pritzkers who were trying to stave off famine. That's why he's 500 pounds. Because oh, that's, his, that's his set point. And his relatives, too. I mean, they're a large family. Set points. Okay. This has nothing. This is... you, willpower. Throw that out the window, says the doctor. It has nothing to do with that. It's a brain I- issue, and it's a set point. I need, my brain is telling me I need to be four bills. To so store you know, up fat for the wintertime? For the next famine. <laughs> for the next famine, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then interestingly, willpower doesn't matter uh, going in reverse, but it apparently does going forward. So I'm at home playing video games, uh, eating cheese uh, during covid and then I gain 40 pounds. Well, that just becomes my new set point. Now my brain has put the set point 40 pounds forward. So now 40 pounds forward. I, I can't do anything about it. I'm going to be 40 pounds heavier for the rest of my life. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro. Answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. You can never, it's interesting. So I, that would have been my follow-up. But I mean, you know, I'm not the brilliant interviewer that Leslie Solis. So you just said I could push my set point forward when I gain weight, but I can't bring the set point back in my mind if I lose weight through diet and exercise. Huh. I find that curious. Uh, another question, uh, doctor, uh, um, doctor, um, the obesity rate in America is like a little bit more than one in three. It's about nine times what it is in Japan, yep. for example. Um, and the Japanese, the average calorie consumption on a daily basis is like 2,600 calories. And the average uh, daily consumption in the United States 5, is about 3,600 <laughs> calories. Okay. Does that 1,000 calorie difference, that sort of culturally what uh, Japanese people consume on average versus what Americans consume on average, does that make a difference at all? Or is it just set points? Texas. I mean, I'm not a I'm not on Harvard Medical Faculty. I'm just asking questions. This is the dumbest smart person of 2023 so far. <laughs> if it's a brain disorder, I don't know. I mean, should we get frontal lobotomies? And if it's a brain disorder, what are we going to do? Well, we don't do Does anything. A solution? Oh, we just live with this. You, this is this is just this is your People brain. Obesity. This is your brain pr- protecting you for the next famine. This mm-hmm. is your brain telling you this is where you need to be at. You need to store this fat. So. Uh, you know, again, the gym memberships, the Peloton, the, uh, you know, three cheeseburgers a day diet. 
the Azempic, the Rebellus, the diabetes medicine that people are buying to go lose for weight. it. Whatever you want, whatever you want to do. Diabetic, yeah. Whatever. I mean, you don't have to do that thing. But if you if you weren't dieting that way right now, if you weren't doing uh, three cheeseburgers a day, you just heard from the doctor. You do three cheeseburgers a day. You gain twenty or thirty pounds over a few months, and you sustain it. Well, that's your new set point. Your brain will recalibrate that. I need to be thirty pounds heavier forever. It's the whole. You know, it's not your fault. You know, you're fat, but it's not your fault. Now, to to the be fair, that we have in the society now. To be fair, the the science that I've read on this, genetics play a factor. I they think do. we all know that 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 it's a factor. But so is environment and behavior. And to suggest the the the, the most crazy statement she made is the one referenced before but let's repeat it willpower she's asked throw that out the window i mean come on you can have all the credentials in the world you can't make that true mary Kay, western springs here in chicago's morning in hey you guys hi you guys that that, that what you just said <laughs> willpower <laughs> you you're exactly right, Dan. You need willpower. You don't throw willpower out the window. No. Then I'm out of a job. What yep. the hell? I can't. I wouldn't be able to help anybody. Um, let's see. Without willpower, you, you don't get up in the morning. I'm here. I was on my way to the gym, but I'm waiting for you guys. I want to talk. Um, so for, you don't you have to worry people... about the gym anymore. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, I know. But you know what? Change that wad, or they made a while. I'm gonna. I'll put the calories up on the Burger King menu and all oh, that. Yeah. Remember that? Well, they yeah. still okay, have it so there. Amy, I know, but so you walk in probably, Amy, and say, yeah, like, I'm not going to order the 1,300 Chick-fil-A sandwich at 1,300 calories. Now, my people in my family who are obese, the genetics, the people who got the bad genes, they will walk in there, and they probably don't even know what that means. I know my brother wouldn't. He'd go in and say, what's a CLA 1350 mean? <laughs> Low-cal doesn't mean local. You know? I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I, I take so, those. So there you go. I take the calorie right. listings on these menus like as a challenge. I'm like, I, th- I go in, I want like a, a grilled chicken sandwich. I see that's really? well, that's like 600 calories. I could do better than that. Yeah. You're like, make it a double. Uh, Throw yeah, some cheese on there and some extra I, mayonnaise. I, I, I think I, I think I could do 1500 <laughs> calories without even trying. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the call, Mary Kay. Matt Mount Greenwood. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. This is uh, just another just another victim victimhood issue. It's called fork to mouth disease. If they yeah. move more and chewed less, <laughs> they look much better. I'm just saying. You know, my grandmother moved in when I was two years old. My brother and sister, slim, fit folks, and my sister and I, and my two younger sisters are you know lovely ladies, but they look like a couple bookends, as do I. So it's oh all about torque <laughs> intake. Have a good day, folks. But it is genetic. I mean, I... <laughs> hey, he threw himself in there, too. Yeah, a couple of bookends. Um, all right. Well, if you're not going to do it for yourself, you know, cut out the the double cheeseburgers, the smash burgers, and yeah. so forth. If you're not going to do it for yourself, could, could you please do it to save the planet? Siemens chairman, unbelievable, this guy's chairman of a massive company. He was at the World Economic Forum last week. Of course he was. He's chairman of Siemens. Yeah. His name is Jim Hageman. And he offered this little riff on replacing meat. Like re- like replacing meat as part of uh, the diet Normal of the world. Of life. Okay. Yeah. Food for all 8 billion people in this world. 
So it's a very important point that you are addressing. Um, my daughter, 24, inspired me and said that, how can you advocate for these zero carbon value chains if you still eat meat? And so I stopped eating meat. Now the math would say, well, you need to stop eating meat in 11 years to compensate for a flight to Thailand. Yes, but if a billion people stop eating meat, I tell you it has a big impact. Sure. Oh, yeah. Not only does it have a big impact on the current food system, but it will also inspire innovation of food systems. Mm -hmm. And I predict that we will have proteins not coming from um, meat in the future. They will probably taste even better. So why are we trying to mimic meat if we can have a better taste? They will be zero carbon and much healthier than the kind of food that we eat today. That is a mission that we need to get on. I can inspire you to maybe look at an organization called EAT, easy to remember, EAT, <laughs> who have all the facts on this and who have the policies necessary, the innovations necessary, and the scale necessary in order to make food systems sustainable and healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, those Chick-fil-A cows are going to be very happy to hear that. But uh, the... Uh, and the other thing I like about this, hey, my 24-year-old daughter, who's, you know, just probably just some eco-nut, right. got out of some uh, prestigious, quote-unquote, prestigious college and is just eco-nut. She inspired me to be a moron. She's probably wearing a hemp dress. Yes. Yeah, she did inspire him to be a moron. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, speaking, of, though, of replacing meat, and he's right, um, the innovations, they're, they are afoot. This uh, was submitted to the European Commission, an application uh, for the authorization to place Acida domesticus. That's a house cricket. What's that? Yeah. Am I supposed to know? Did That's you go a, to prom with him? Acida domesticus. Acida domesticus? <laughs> yeah. He was, yeah, he was the, the, em the emperor and gladiator. No, that's the um, uh, scientific name for house cricket. Okay. House cricket, partially defatted powder, uh, put that in the European Union uh, in European Union market as a novel food. Uh, partially defatted powder from whole house crickets would be used in multigrain bread and rolls, crackers and breadsticks, cereal bars, dry premixes for baked products, biscuits, dry stuffed and unstuffed pasta-based products, sauces, processed potato products, uh, pizza, pasta-based products. Whey powder, meat analogs, soups and soup concentrates or powders, maize flour, Ooh. bake sack, beer-like beverages, chocolate confectionery, nuts and oil seeds, snacks Just other than chips everything. and meat preparation intended for the general population. So, I mean, this is, you know, where we're going. Cricket powder. It's, it's the future. It's the Cr new thing. Cricket powder is the future. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. You know, there's going to be some stops and starts on this uh, innovative innovating food systems trail we're on but you know follow the cricket powder on the trail chris and carrie you're on chicago's morning answer hey good morning guys um you can look no further than go back and look at pictures of like the, the 50s the 40s the 30s everyone's thin i mean remember the three stooges curly was like the big giant fat guy he looks yeah. thin in today's standards yeah remember yeah. when refrigerator perry was the biggest player oh, in the yeah. nfl at 300 pounds 
Yeah, and now right. that's just child's play. Yeah, no, Americans are fatter. I think we're 35 to 40 pounds fatter than we were in the 1950s, collectively. Because? Because? As you heard from a doctor, the, the Harvard doctor, Fatima Cody-Stanford, because we're a few generations removed and we're evolving to prepare for the next famine. And you got to be, you know, tipping the scales at at least uh, two and a quarter to be famine ready. Maybe 250. Uh, I'm still waiting for my, uh, I had to go to Quest Diagnostic, you know, for our vitality healthcare. Still waiting to see if I'm obese or morbidly obese. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Ask Quinn. Bill in LaSalle mm-hmm. County. You gained some Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, if you look around the Boston area, especially around MIT, every single big pharma company and biotech firm is got big office buildings right there. It can't be necessary, and also by Boston U. It can't be by Harvard per se, but they're by all the other big university hospitals that are there. You often wonder if maybe the reason says, you know, get rid of the willpower because big farmers got the answer for you. Mm. And the university gets so much research money from big pharma and the biotechs, it's insane the amount of money they get. Uh, that's a good point, Bill, and we're going to tackle that at the top of the 7 o'clock hour, so you want to stay tuned for our conversation with uh, Professor Mark Bauerlein about uh, big pharma and colleges. Uh, John Crown Point. Hi, Dan and Amy. I love your show. Love Amy more. There it is. Hey, as far as the famine problem, we could do like that one movie did, Soylent Green. Yeah, that one movie. Yes. Yeah, that thing. Yeah. yeah. We've heard At, of it. Actually, we could At the movies the with John from Crown Point. Yeah. We right. get... Thanks, John. Chuck and Delavan. The big chemical companies are the biggest herbicides and pesticides companies there are. Vegetarians are responsible for more animal death than, and I know I'm a farmer, but I don't use anything. When baby pheasants, quails, baby birds, when they wake up, they got to have bugs and insects. Well, because vegans have to have clean food without a bunch of holes eaten in it, uh, they, they take and they're the ones that are killing all these animals. They're the ones that are killing wildlife. So people better start looking at vegans and stop pointing the finger at people who eat meat once in a while. Thank you very much. And eat your crickets. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You got to tell them, silent breed is people! It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer. On AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Here's some train-the-trainer agitprop that's circulating among uh, daycare center operators. Ostensibly, make his way, if it already hasn't, into grammar schools. Train the trainer, meaning indoctrinate the teacher to indoctrinate the kids. Right. Starting in kindergarten, uh, kindergarten. actually preschool, of preschool. course. Preschool. Four and five-year-olds. This is a film with four and five-year-olds and a preschool facilitator. It's hard to call her a teacher. Indoctrinator named Maddie Piper. She uh, breaks out a little doll, introduces the kids to a doll, and then talks about gender identity. Oh, no. And uh, the conversations that she has with these four- and five-year-old kids 
then there's a cutaway to her discussion in like a group of colleagues about what she's doing and how important this is. So it cuts in and out. But that's it. It's Maddie Piper, the indoctrinator with a doll talking to the kids, then talking to her colleagues about talking to the kids and then back to the kids. Take a listen. Oh, Huckleberries. Today, I wanted to introduce you to a new friend in our class. Well, this, Huckleberries, is my friend, Nash. It's our first day in our class. They're just looking around at all of you, and they're so curious to know who you all are. Today uh, was fun. It was really interesting, though, knowing going in, being like, I don't know what questions kiddos are going to have or what they're going to say, um, which is both like nerve-wracking, but also kind of exciting. It's that place of um, not knowing as a teacher and just being okay with that. And the friend likes to ask the question, are you a boy or a girl? And Nash answers, I'm just a kid. But a kid. But kids can be boys or girls. They can be boys yeah. or girls. Or yeah. Or yeah. It was just like non-binary, yeah. yeah. That's just something that we know. And <laughs> this is something, I mean, it's like they're four and five years old, and they just didn't make a big deal out of being a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a huge testament to how much we've been talking about it in the classroom that you never mentioned the term non-binary. It was yeah. a child who brought that up because it's constantly in conversation. Yeah, just like me. So Nash, just like me, is non-binary. So they aren't sure if they're a boy or a girl. Oh. So when people ask them, are you a boy or a girl? Right now they just feel like saying, I'm a kid. They're figuring it out. Why does he like, does he like stars? They like stars. They like stars. Yeah. And they and are why really... why they wear their star shirt? They wore their star shirt because it's their favorite shirt. And because they were nervous today, they thought they would wear something that makes them feel special. The uh, documentary, Agitprop, called Reflecting on Anti-Bias Education in Action, the Early Years. I mean, to process this, what we just heard is painful. I mean, kids at that age should know about the alphabet, counting to 10, getting dressed in the morning, using the washroom, That's and learning primary colors. Not that. The, uh, it's child abuse. I'm the kid, you, going the kid saying non-binary. Four and five-year-olds know what non-binary is, or they know the term, because as the adults said in the cutaway, yeah, we've been talking. You know, they hear it constantly. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Ugh. Right. This is no social contagion, though. They hear it constantly. You're pounding it into their heads at four and five years old, but it's not a social contagion. It's a real individual exploration of identity. Oh, my God. Go back to the basics, you know, functioning motor skills of holding a pencil and using scissors. Talking about that crap. God. Where, where want... was this? Or is this just a documentary that's going to air nationwide? And... No, this was, this was CPS? Uh, shown to daycare center operators in oh. North Carolina, in the state of North Carolina. North Carolina. Daycare center operators. Oh, 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. But it'll, it'll come to the schools. Well, I would love to hear from a teacher who's not going to follow this gobbledygook that would you know, be forced to watch it because she has to to keep her job and then do the opposite and do the right thing and just fo- focus on, again, what we just talked about. Well, the kids, um, the kids and the parents, uh, you know, they want to learn the nomenclature so this doesn't happen to their family. Maryland recently harbored a runaway from a red state when her adoptive parents didn't call her by the proper pronoun. They refused to give the teenager, the state of Maryland, refused to give the teenager back to her Uh adoptive parents. According to the grandmother who has adopted the child, the child was sex trafficked. 14-year-old trans runaway from Virginia endured a six-month nightmare that saw her twice fall into the hands of sex traffickers, the second time after Baltimore bureaucrats refused to return her to her home state because they accused her adoptive parents of misgendering her. After her father's death, uh, Sage, that's her name, adopted by her biological grandmother, then she decided to identify as a boy named Draco, ran away, wound up in Baltimore where police saved her from a sex offender, but then police would not return her to her legal guardian, her grandmother, because of the accusation of misgendering in the home. But I know it doesn't affect you, right? You're just going to sit back and watch that happen? The, where the just, government has control, complete control over your children. That's what it's just is. about uh, being polite. That's all. What's the big deal? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in D A then a quick comment. And then let's take it to the next step. So we've gone from preschool to teenager with an identity crisis, gender dysphoria, to Duchess Lois in Canada. I'm accessing Made. Made. I mean, these are Wellian. Like nice for which is an acronym for the British state healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Made is the acronym for Canada's euthanasia program, medical assistance in dying. The Made program. Oh, Here, no. let me help you. Just call Made one eight hundred Made. Yeah, we'll clean you right up and out. Uh, I'm accessing Made, Duchess Lois, as a sterilized First Nations person. She's an Indigenous person in. Well, he is. He? Okay, get he it right, became Dan. A sh- she. He, you know, is masquerading as a she. I'm accessing made as a sterilized First Nations person who is also a post-op transsexual woman of 14 years. I qualify for it as someone who is sterilized and who has undergone vangioplasty, two things that cannot be reversed or relieved, so that she's uh, providing this information consistent with the the supposed guidelines you have to meet to, to get uh, let the state kill you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's uh, her story. The last couple of years were very intense medically for me. His story. Duchess Lois, I get confused. I, I got to keep tracking his scorecard. Um, the last couple of years were medically intense for me when I experienced depth loss in June of 21. 
I had had a second dilation to my weekly routine to help myself. The doctor wasn't concerned, as she put it, we as females experience vaginal atrophy. Uh, by the way, vaginal atrophy was the name of my high school band. Cover for? Uh, we were a Go-Go's cover band. Mm. Oh, because okay. like George Santos, I had fun when I was a kid. So yeah, I dressed up like Belinda Carlisle. Uh, I had a life. Just stop making a big thing about it. I'm not a drag queen, all right? And I'm a star volleyball player. <laughs> all right. Okay, Getting cool. back to the story. Yes, please. Uh, all right. So this okay. is her, her, her doctor the, the talking about her interaction with doctor. I had to correct her, a doctor. June ended, and I was still dilating twice a week. Then came August. I was still dilating twice a week with less pain, but still no referral to any specialist. September came. I inquired, and there was no referral. A wonderful Canadian healthcare system, state-run Canadian healthcare system, we're supposed to model America after, and we have largely. Instead, she referred me to the gender clinic in Edmonton. December 2021 is when I finally spoke to somebody at the clinic via a phone call. That's six months later. We spoke about my hormones. That's another issue. Then the pain and dilating. A referral was made to a specialist, finally. 2022 came. I was referred to the Lois Hole Hospital for Women. Okay. Hey, I didn't name it. And you don't go there either. The Lois Hole Hospital for Women? Talk about Dickensian. Okay. With an emphasis on the Dickens. It was a phone consultation, nothing more. I was relabeled from homosexual to asexual by that doctor. Then came June of 2022, so this is the year she's recounting. I experienced a rare event of a confusional migraine that lasted 22 days, and during that time I had forgot which genitalia I had. And it caused so much stress, and I was in and out of the hospital, and I tried to raise this concern with several doctors. It was brushed off. I was so confused as to why I didn't have a penis anymore. A lot of men in Hinsdale say the same thing. Hey, oh. That was the tipping point for me. It's what changed my life and mind that I could no longer trust this medical system that is captured by gender identity ideologues. It had killed the Indian. And so now this guy, 14 years after the surgery started and all this uh, tragedy, really, is signing up to be killed by a, a state that killed him anyway. Killed him 14 years ago. Listen to what he says now. I started my transition in the fall of 2007 with testosterone blockers. Puberty blockers, it's not a big deal. That doesn't hurt anybody. No, not at all. Um, Diagnosed with um, uh, gender identity disorder. In February, March of 08, I was sent to an endocrinologist, put on estrogen. Every four to six months, I went to see a psychiatrist at the Gray Nuns Hospital. Uh, inpatient psychiatrist unit in Edmonton. It's a few hours drive from my reservation. The appointments lasted 30 minutes to an hour. Not once did we talk about my native heritage and the cultural impact uh, the transition would have. She goes on to say, if I were to lay blame at well, he goes on to say about her alter ego. If I were to lay blame, it would be trans activists and their activism. Wow. Yeah. She's, they have created a dehumanizing, degrading, and dismissive environment for people like me. Now, uh, he has to live with the choices that he made. I understand that. 
but it's a conversation, it's a story that we've told over and over again with respect to uh, medical professionals who are blinded by or incentivized to abide this gender identity poison rather than providing pushback, asking questions, as uh, Duchess Lois talks about, exploring all the aspects of the of life this will impact. Are you, have you really thought through these impacts? You know, she's talking about somebody, uh, I'm sure he was a young man when he started this in 2007. Uh, it just and the, the 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 ending of this with the state with with him going to the state to kill him. It's just it's a graphic. It's <clears throat> terrible. It's tragic, and it's a great illustration of how terrible and tragic this social contagion, this rapacious ideology is. I wonder if they're going to grant him his wish. Oh, I mean. The, look, well, that, that, not, that's right? one, one, just a practical reason, even if you're not religious, a practical reason to oppose these state death programs as the state is very excited to take people out. So the state does. Sick, really, really sick and sad from four year old to. Duchess Lois and so many stories like Duchess Lois's and there'll be more the New York Times piece about how uh, schools are hiding kids gender identity at school from parents and parents are some parents are upset and so on and so forth and, and the New York Times says without comment in the story writes in the story oh and uh, there's been you know uh, it's a small number but it's doubled in recent years those who are identifying as trans yeah right why do you think that is a doubling so fast. How how you have school districts that infinitesimal percent, fractions of one percent that are now eight, nine, ten percent of the student body identifying as trans, like uh, one school district in San, in uh, California we talked about last week. How does that happen? Are you curious at all? Why the explosion? And what the what the impact will be? As we continue to promote this through propaganda like that film being shown to daycare center operators in North Carolina. Uh, again, school board elections in April here. This part of your conversation in PTA, in uh, at school board meetings, neighborhood events, so forth, sporting events. What the hell is going on here? This is how you want to go. This is how you want it to go. Too afraid to say something, even though you know this is horrific. Judy Lamont, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. It's hard to listen to you guys say all these stories, but I appreciate all you do to bring this to the light. Um, very troubling, but I know, uh, at least at our district, they are trying to fight all this garbage, so I'm so happy for that. But what I called about is when you guys talk about this, and I always go back to 10 years ago when I was in the Common Core, 
hard and heavy, a good old Melissa Harris Perry on her NBC and MSNBC, and it's online. Anybody can look it up. But what she said, and you have to hear her hauntingly say that we have to end the. I'm reading from it. We have to end the private idea that kids belong to their parents. Yeah, kids I remember belong that. To their families. Yeah. It just it's ten years later that notion that the kid is ours and our community collective notion of these children. That was all new speak back then. But fast forward. 10 years, a quick 10 years, and here we are with that over and over again. So people look it up because it's, it's just coming in our faces. So thank you for all you guys do. Thanks, Judy. Yes, indeed. Here we are. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Alex Berenson reporting at his uh, his, uh, substack that uh, deaths in England are surging again. The bad news for vaccine advocates came from the British government this morning, he writes. The Office of National Stats across the pond there in Maryland, England, registered 17,381 deaths in England and Wales for the week that ended Friday, January 13th. That figure is about 20% more than the five-year average, about 30% more than the longer-term averages for the year's second week. Only about 650 of the deaths had COVID as an underlying cause, so most of the excess death was not related to COVID. Hmm. And uh, most of the excess deaths are coming from highly mRNA vaccinated countries, or in the case of UK, parts of the UK. The British data confirms recent trends all over Western Europe, writes Berenson, including the Netherlands and Switzerland. Most wealthy countries that relied on mRNA COVID vaccine shots and boosters had non-COVID deaths well above normal in 2022. The problem has worsened in recent weeks in the wake of the fall Omicron booster campaigns. With the upward uh, revisions, Europe will now probably report more excess deaths in 2022 than either 2020 before COVID vaccines were available or 2021 before boosters began in earnest. No connection has yet been proven, but there are... um, Certainly some questions that are raised by this data. And, of course, they'll be explored by dutiful academics on college campuses. These the, are incubators of thought and debate, right? I don't think so. Dr. Vinay Prasad is an epidemiologist and a biostats professor at UC San Francisco. He writes at his substack because this is the only place they can have discussions, <laughs> reporters and academics. If you have anything, if you have anything to say that doesn't uh, comport with uh, the received wisdom of the left, then you better have a substack or a YouTube channel for as long as you can, because you're not going to be able to voice it on a college campus. And that's his point, Dr. Prasad. He said he writes while uh, most of America has put COVID in the rearview mirror. That is not the case on college campuses. Perhaps any college students listening or 
parents of college students can attest to this. We have to mask to see patients, writes Dr. Prasad. Even those who are hard of hearing and rely on reading lips, these policies are set without evidence by people who are not good at their job. Oh, perfect. Masking in classroom didactics remain through the roof. The one place on earth where people are trying to avoid the inevitable. Universities retain their title as the one place on earth with the least common sense. So throughout, throughout all this, I cannot recall a single debate of any COVID-19 policy issue. We didn't have debates on masking. We didn't have debates about lockdowns. We didn't have debates about the school closure. We didn't have debates about masking two-year-olds. We continue to have no debates. We have never debated if we should continue to mask in healthcare facilities. We don't debate if the annual bivalent booster mandate makes sense. We just sign the declination form pledging fealty to Lord Fauci or boost up. There is no forum for any discussion. No one houses any debates. And he thinks, he basically points to two reasons he believes this is the case. One is the universities are primarily interested in cash. And as we talked about uh, last hour on the topic of obesity, their universities are so reliant on their partnerships with biopharma uh, companies, billing insurance companies. Um, he writes, we continue to enter in a, into agreements with pharma companies. There's no time to debate public policy. All these debates might put off a future pharmaceutical company suitor. Exactly. And then the more customary explanation, which is doesn't mean it's inaccurate, is that the administrators are scared of the students and this is a bit redundant, but and completely lacking in courage. So it's basically one, two, and two A is why he thinks this is the case. And he also says it's going to get worse. The list of taboo topics will grow, and the last refuge of the academy will be academics with faculty appointments who run their own YouTube channels, Substack, or podcasts. It's up to them to keep the flame of knowledge, free inquiry, and debate alive as universities continue to prostitute themselves to pharma companies and capitulate to fear of student criticism. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty aggressive takedown from Dr. Vinay Prasad, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, we're happy now to be joined by Professor Mark Bauerlein, professor of English at Emory University, senior editor of First Things, author of The Dumbest Generation and The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. We're waiting for the third in the trilogy, yes. The Dumbest Generation Won't Goes Leave to Us work. Alone. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Mark, Professor Bauerlein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm happy to talk again. So uh, what uh, what about what uh, Dr. Vinay Prasad had to say about uh, the campus culture and why it is how it is? Well, you know, the numbers show that really since the baby boomer generation went to college and left, what happened in, in, in the 60s was in order to keep up with this huge influx of young people who suddenly wanted to go to college was all these new campuses opened. I mean, they needed they needed warm bodies in classrooms to teach. They were tenuring people right and left, and, and, and they needed to meet the demand because the baby boomer generation was a huge cohort, and you simply didn't have room on the campuses. So things like, you know, University of California added new campuses in Riverside and in Irvine. Uh, the SUNY system uh, expanded. And it was wonderful. It was boom times for the academy. And then the boomers passed through, and the next cohort wasn't that big, Generation X. And that turned the relationship 
around. Suddenly, it was more a buyer's market. The students, the young people, they could sort of pick and choose campuses they wanted to go from. The campuses needed students. And so they changed to do things like, let's, let's build an amazing gym in order to recruit those kids. Let's, let's lower the general ed requirements so kids don't have to take all those courses that they really aren't interested. They can, they can just go straight into business. They don't need to learn any U.S. history or culture or learn to, to, to write. Uh, and this has just expanded in the, into the coddling, infantilization, the, the, the treatment of 19-year-olds in America in the way that 12-year-olds used to be taught. And, and the university said, we've got to do that because if a, a lot of these liberal arts colleges especially are operating oh, yeah. very close to, to bankruptcy, and if they lose, say, 20 students in the next years entering class, that, that's a lot of money for them. And remember, with tuition costs you know, going up and up and up, they really need those kids to be happy. A kid who comes in freshman year and then drops out, oh, man, we're looking at a loss of you know, $200,000 on, 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 the, on the, the tuition stream from, from some of these kids. So it really turns into uh, let, let's make this a, a, an elementary schoolyard. And take care of these kids. So be afraid. Be very. We're here for you. We're going to take care of everyone. It's it's really about numbers, recruitment, and what you said. Keeping kids happy. Telling the parents, safe. This is a safe space in all ways, not just emotionally and and the identities and everything, but place for your health as well. And that's the most important thing. Well, they have these beautiful food courts now and sleek new dorms. I mean, I because I'm college shopping with my youngest. My oldest goes to Georgia Tech, and we get, you know, emails once a week saying, you know, if your son is struggling or son or daughter, go to, you know, we, we're here for them. We can help them, which is fine. But do you think the professors are leaning on the grades and the grading process to keep them in school and to keep us paying their tuition? The numbers on the grades are, in 1960, the most common grade on a college campus was a C. That was an average grade, and it was the most popular one. You know what I'm going to say. Today, about 40 45% of all grades on campus are A grades. Nearly kids get A's in their classes, and it's really a deal. And here's the deal. Says, look, you guys, uh, I've got a little conference paper to write. I want to be in my office, have my quiet time. Don't 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 push too hard, and all of you will get a B or an A. And the students turn around and say, "Good deal. Uh, we we like that. The tuition gets paid. The degrees uh, get awarded. The parents are happy. The wheels keep turning. That that's the deal on on the campuses now." Uh, do you agree with uh, uh, Vinay Prasad that uh, it's going to continue to? go in this direction because that's where the money is and you know and where are the examples where are the green shoots that suggest there's going to be any pushback to this model you know i just don't see any push because what's the reward of right. of the pushback 
What's it going to get you to be a, a teacher who gives lower grades because you want to hold the line? You want to push the students harder. I mean, we had a case at NYU last year. A teacher got removed from a classroom, even though he'd been there a long time teaching organic chemistry because the students revolted because they said, you know, this class, he's, 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 he's given too many low grades. Well, he's been doing this for decades. He was a very good teacher. And organic chemistry is a filtering class for med school. Right. You want students who, who, who would ordinarily get a D. You want them going into, going into med school and, and getting – and by the way, a lot of med schools, they've, the great inflation there has happened by changing the system to pass-fail. Pass-fail grades and you could take a course and retake it and retake it if you've failed it. And once you pass it, all your fails here. So it only looks like you, you, you once well, passed it. And, and right, and it's right. That's why it's just like the the admonition is: don't go to a doctor that's under forty five years old, uh, or do so at your own risk. Uh, but um, the, the the same would go for debate on campus too. These intellectual uh, repositories of of uh, discussion and thoughtfulness, these free marketplaces of ideas. Well, if everybody just shuts up, then there's peace on campus and uh, the checks get cut coming in and going out. We, 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 we need to, we need to be very sensitive. We, we need to, we need to be thoughtful because remember the, the trauma that a lot of these kids feel when you use the wrong pronoun. Oh, yeah. I want you to remember what yeah. a microaggression can do yeah. to a delicate 19-year-old soul. It could be microscopic, micro, but, but we, we have to understand the depth of pain right. a lot of these people have suffered. And, and, and certain identities live every day with discrimination. And the college campus is going to be a place where we're all inclusive. Everyone is tolerant. It's a happy diversity here on our campus. Just look at those promotional materials, those those pictures of those smiling faces and all the all these Benetton uh, 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 layouts like. Uh, and this is all part of, again, the way the system works. And right. to change this system, the money is big time. Harvard has a $45 billion endowment. Right. And careers, there's a whole industry now devoted to this DEI sensitivity. So people occupy these offices who are themselves control freaks, suspicious people. I mean, imagine what personality you have to have to hold a diversity orientation seminar and walk into the room of 30 people and look around and think to yourself, you know, there's some people in this room with some very bad thoughts, bad <laughs> attitudes in their heads, and I'm going to root them out. Well, what, what kind of personality does it take? To you know what? It, it, it's it's, it's so funny that the language the, – these people uh, talk like hippies and they act like Sicilian mob bosses, right? <laughs> it's all, it's all you, the, the flowery language, and then it is, you know, uh, clip that guy and clip that guy. Lawrence. Diversity, inclusion—they sound so—they sound so good. But so, what? Why is it that places that highlight these the most are places where people are nervous? They're, they're they worry about the words that they might use. 
the professor who's taught a book for 20 years suddenly thinks, wait a minute, you know, Huck Finn, it's got some bad words in it. I can't teach that book anymore. The atmosphere for a lot. I mean, my liberal colleagues on campus, uh, most of them are good people and they they're nervous themselves. They worry because uh, they just want to teach their classes and go home and, and live their lives. But now it's such a heated atmosphere. I mean, when, when you've got Stanford University issuing a list of words that one is not allowed to use right. anymore on campus, I mean, the, there goes the free speech movement, right? I, I thought that was what the left was all about. Let it all hang out. Do your own thing. No, no. He is Professor Mark Bauerlein, a professor of English at Emory University, senior editor of First Things, author of both The Dumbest Generation and The Dumbest Generation Grows Up and Takes Over, apparently. Uh, professor Bauerlein, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.proanswer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Please be joined now by our friend, uh, economist Steve Moore, author of Govzilla. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, uh, good morning, guys. By the way, is it true that Lake Michigan is going to start to boil over? (laughs) Well, we're going to get a wind farm. uh, Climate change. (laughs) The southeast side of Chicago, that's the proposal. Because, you know, Al Gore says the Atlantic Ocean is going to start boiling over, so I didn't know if that was going to affect Lake Michigan. Oh, no, no. uh, He was very worked up at the World Economic Forum about it. (laughs) This is his Super Bowl. Uh, Before we get to to that, we're asking... All of our guests that are uh, that live in and around the Beltway that have some relationship to government, mm-hmm. do you have any classified documents that may have inadvertently <laughs> be put at your home that you would like to turn over to the National Archives? Answer the question, I'm, Mr. Moore. <laughs> now. I'm going to have to plead. I'm going to have to plead the uh, Fifth Amendment on that one. I have a right to remain silent. Right. All right. We'll so what do you, confer what with counsel and get back to us. I mean, what do you think of Vice President Mike Pence you know, joining the classified documents family? Or do you think he just wanted to be included? Because it's free publicity and he probably <laughs> is going to run for president, just like Joe Biden and Trump. Well, um, this is quite, quite, a, quite a scandal that's erupting. No question about it. And you know, the, the thing that I think is kind of scary about it is that, um, you know, this is actually it, it really is a kind of national security crisis when you have, you know, the president of the United States with with these with these um, boxes of, of classified documents, it, you know, sitting next to his what, what kind of car was that porch or something in their driveway? Corvette's I mean, but it was well. But but, you know, don't forget, Al Gore. I mean, uh, Joe Biden said that the uh, garage was locked. So nothing to worry about. The national security crisis is having Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden as commander in chief. But um, (laughs) have have you have you ever been in a skiff, Steve Moore? Uh, A skiff. Yeah. Oh, you don't know even as what a skiff is. That's where you have to go if you if you're clear to read classified information like you're a member of Congress. Oh, you know, I was not never rose up to that level of authority. So I was a lowly. Econ- you know, there aren't a lot of economists do that kind of thing. No, no economists in really... the skiff. Got it. Yeah. All right. No room in the skiff. Uh, all right. Let's talk about uh, a couple of other things um, uh, that are more center cut for you. Uh, for example, you know, I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, 
I thought you and Art Laffer and Larry Kudlow and the 80s and the Laffer Curve, I thought that de debunked the Phillips Curve, that unemployment and inflation have an inverse relationship, and yet we have a Fed that's acting like the Phillips Curve is still operable. So, you know, it's, it's uh, first of all, of course, the Laffer Curve, I mean, the, the Phillips Curve is a joke. And for, for people who aren't economists, the Phillips Curve is this idea that to bring inflation down, you have to put people out of work. That's just that's nutty. That's a crazy idea. And it, and you're right, Dan. That if you look at the '80s when Reagan was president, what happened? We brought inflation down and unemployment down at the same time. We had low inflation, high growth, and high employment. So the, the, this idea that putting people out of work is somehow going to um, <laughs> take away inflation um, is just is just flawed. And, and you know, Art Laffer says this best. You know, he said. If you have an economy and the economy um, produces fewer apples, what happens to the price of apples? Oh, the price goes up. If the economy produces more apples because more people are working, what happens to the price of apples? They go down. So this, the, it doesn't even make sense, the Phillips curve, on a common sense you know, point of view. You don't have to be a PhD economist to understand this. And you're right that this is the logic that Jerome Powell is using at the Fed where he's basically saying, yeah, we got to drive that unemployment rate up to bring the inflation rate down. And I think that is completely flawed. We need more growth, not less. And, and I am worried about a, a, a recession. I'm not, I'm not one who thinks it's inevitable, but the economy does show signs of slowing down. But more importantly, what I'm really worried about right now is a, a genuine financial crisis. Uh, you know, our debt, when I first came to Washington in 1984, straight out of the University of Illinois, the debt was about $1.5 trillion. Now it's $31.5 trillion. Ooh. I'm having a big impact, aren't I, in Washington? You're doing a heck <laughs> yeah. of a job so, there. Ooh. And without you, it would have been $40 trillion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the, the point is it just keeps on going up and up and up. And at some point, you know, there will be a financial crisis if we don't deal with this. Meanwhile, by the way, revenues, federal tax revenues, after the Trump tax cut, you know, the five years after the tax cut are as high as they have ever been before. Did you know that we have record amounts of tax revenue? So we do not have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. And I got to tell you guys, I, uh, I got together the other day with one of my favorite senators, which is a low bar. <laughs> but yes. one of my favorite senators is Rand Paul. And Rand pointed out to me at uh, when we were getting together, he said, Steve, you know, if we could just go back to the pre-COVID budget, you know, in 2019, before the COVID crisis hit us and the pandemic hit us, it, he said, you know, we could we could just balance the budget. The budget would be balanced if we just went back to what we were spending before COVID. And I said, man, that can't possibly be true. And after the meeting, I went back and looked it up in the budget, and he's right. So balancing the budget really wouldn't be that difficult. We just have to say, okay, COVID is over. We're going to go back to what we were spending five years ago. Is that so hard? I don't know the back, the 2019 the dark ages we have to go all the way back to 20 <laughs> exactly. it was like 20 years you know, ago uh, yeah so, so but over that time period by the way that over that you know three or four year period we have added you know seven trillion dollars to the debt you know so it, it can't go on I mean this is this is a uh, this is a locomotive that is headed right over a cliff and and I'm with the Republicans I, I say no debt deal. No debt extension until you get some kind of plan to uh, to balance the budget. I like what my friend Kevin Hassett says: um, three dollars of spending cuts for every one dollar we increase the debt. 
Uh, okay. All right. Like can you go, can you live with that, Dan? I mean, well, I, you, I could live with I could live with a lot more than that. But I mean, but and, but <laughs> but then why doesn't why doesn't uh, why don't uh, House Republicans? I know McCarthy had the pressure last night. He's like, uh, we just want we want to have a sit down and find common ground and all the right. typical political bromides. Why why don't you just propose? Here's here's where we would cut. Here's our three dollars yeah. of spending cuts, and here's the here's what we'll give you on the debt ceiling. Just just put it out. Okay, you know I, I'm going to slip you an answer, but I don't want to. This is nobody's listening, right? So right, I, uh, I'm Connie it's, Chung. Yeah, right. This is this is an off the record radio show, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Republicans don't want to cut spending either. What did <laughs> yeah, you say? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's just a rhetorical position. Exactly. <laughs> They love all. They all love right. Money. Which is why <laughs> this is debt. Which is why this is what it's always been: debt ceiling theater. Yeah. Just like we have government shutdown theater around the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while you'll get a senator like a, a Bill Graham or a Tom Coburn or a, uh, or a uh, you know Rand Paul who wants to cut spending, and they're they're the they're the skunk at the garden party. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. There's some honesty that, which is exactly what Kevin McCarthy should say. He, even if Kevin McCarthy said, which is probably <laughs> dishonest for him to say, but he's like, look, look, it, I, we could cut spending, but we just don't want to. We just, <laughs> we just don't have the numbers to cut spending. So I'm not uh, gonna, I'm not gonna go through this theater with you and play the typical tit for tat you see with this, with the debt ceiling or with the government shutdown showdown. Yeah. It's all nonsense. Yeah. Now, look, I want to make sure, though, that your listeners understand one thing, that that this this um, hullabaloo uh, and this fear mongering by President Biden saying, oh, my God, the Republicans want to default on our debt yeah, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is is really it's first of all, he says, oh, that's going to drive down, you know, up the cost of borrowing. No, I mean, it's the president saying that we're going to default on the debt. What do you think impact that has on people's willingness to buy the debt? And it's a, a crock. We're, the government is never, 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 never. You heard it first time on the Dan and Amy show. The government is not going to default on the debt. What is going to happen? Let's say that we reach a point where they can't reach a deal, which I'd be fine with. And, and then all of a sudden you reach the debt um, ceiling. And, and you know what happens then? What? Well, think about it. So that what does that mean if we re- reach the the basically the limit? Uh, what happens? We raise the Amy, limit. If you, it, yeah, it, no, well, no. Let's say that you've reached the limit on your credit card, okay. and then you go and you try to use your credit card. What happens? It's denied. Yeah, it's denied. So you can't. In other words, so if we hit the debt ceiling, uh, all of a sudden Congress can't borrow anymore because there's no more money in the credit card. And then what do you have to do? You can own in that case. What you can do is you can only spend what you bring in. Gee, what a concept. <laughs> so in other words, you know, the government collects revenues every day, payroll tax revenues, income tax revenues, corporate revenues, sales tax revenues, blah, blah, blah. So the government, I kind of like this idea, would automatically require Congress to just simply spend what they bring in and balance the budget. All right, Stephen Moore, first we had baby formula shortage. Then we have eggs yeah. where they're smuggling eggs in from Mexico. Yes. And there was a fight yep. at Costco over the. And there's no eggs anywhere. I, I go grocery shopping so you guys don't have to. <laughs> but guess what I found out at okay. the Jewels yesterday? Guess what Guess what the new uh, new item is that is out? Want to take a guess? Uh, Dan? I don't Stephen know. Moore? Carrots. What is it? Carrots. What? Carrots. No. There's no. Due, oh, dear valued best. customers. Are you serious? <laughs> due to oh, adverse God, weather conditions. Yep. We are currently experiencing shortages of carrots. That is the best news I've heard all Hi, I love carrots. I hate carrots. Right I hate carrots. 
I've got some uh, worse news for you, Steve. Uh, per the uh, World Economic Forum last week, that hamburger that you're used to eating is going to be made of cricket powder going forward. So I just wanted you I to know. I've had a cricket powder burger. Those are really scrumptious. I mean, a Big Mac with cr- cricket powder is going to be so it's good. so with gross. Sauce and all that. <laughs> yeah, it is going to be good. And by the way, these, these people, that you know, I thought they love wildlife, but they really do want to abolish the cow, not the cow, the cow. They want, they want to abolish yes. cows and cars. And people. Because, you know. Cow flatulence is destroying, destroying our environment. Yeah. That's right. Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street <laughs> or, uh, economist and author of Godzilla, I should say, author of Godzilla. Steve, thanks as always. Appreciate it. By the way, is it true? It's it's snowing there, right? Or it's yes, snow it today? is. It's snowing. Yeah. Oh, I miss Chicago so much. Yeah, I'll send <laughs> yeah, you some in a right. jar. Balmy, Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but at least Lake Michigan is no longer cold. I'm so happy. You know, I, yeah, used, I remember right. when I used to go into Lake Michigan. I come out of Lake Michigan, I'd be blue. You know, now I'm going to be red hot, right, because of global warming. Exactly. That's going to be uh, Saint Tropez in the winter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. See, it's like a steam bath. All right. See you guys. Bye. Bye. And he joined us on our Turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it. Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. You think uh, you've got problems here with the lack of carrots in uh, in Beirut on the lake? Yeah. How about the actual Beirut? You know what shopping would be like there, Amy? No. Guy uh, in Beirut uh, posted this on Twitter, bought one... Uh, latte in Lebanon at 10.30 a.m. By the time he ordered a second latte, the price had gone up by 9%. (gasps) The coffee shop there uh, is pegged to the U.S. dollar. Lebanon's inflation rate last year was 162%. Oh, my God. So it could be worse than Beirut by the lake. You could be in, you could actually be in Beirut. Um, And why are you shopping for carrots? I love. What do you mean? I love carrots. It's a no. great snack. It's fruits and it veggies. You know. I like the. I like I the carrots. frozen veggie. Yeah, I, I do like that. It, carrots aren't frozen, honey. <laughs> well, no. I mean, like, well, except when they're cooked. I, yeah, oh, I, I, I get it. Okay. They're cooked as part of a meal. I yes. don't like the cooked carrots as much as I like them just out of the bag. Yeah, with some hummus. Snack. It's a great snack. And now I've, that's sure. gone. And the only thing that they have that you could buy, Dan, is shredded carrots. And I don't think that's going to work. I don't want to take a fork and put, you know. Maybe uh, Joe Biden will release some carrots from our strategic carrot reserve (laughs) that you can get access to. It's some slim pay. And things are never – there's items that are gone from the grocery store that left during the pandemic that have not come back yet. And I tell you, every time I go grocery shopping, I see people just hemming and hawing, and especially elderly people on fixed incomes. I mean, this is scary times. So when was the last time you were in a grocery store? Uh, 97, 97, 98. Good times, place huh? it exactly. Yeah, <laughs> definitely before because I, I went just because I was preparing for uh, you what? know the the end of the world in two thousand oh, with the, right. the millennial turnover, but yeah. but it didn't happen. All right, connect with Dan and Amy on the AM five sixty The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to six four six three six to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM five sixty. The answer. Time now for another reason why Dan Puff is single. Yeah. Dear Abby, my husband and I have been married for nine years. Oh, okay. 
While we were dating, he was kind, considerate, loving. After we married, he turned into a chronic complainer, something he later confessed he had been hiding while we dated. Oh, I'm sure he's oh. the one who took off the uniform. Okay. Now go on. Be nice. He talks to me like I'm trash, and then he gets oh. nice when he wants something. He oh. complains about my grown children, my best friend, and even if I leave work for a couple of, min- a couple of minutes early. He's a miserable person. I can't do anything to make him happy. I can't take this anymore. Boy, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard those lines. Uh, he has taken the things away from me that I love. Flowers, gardening, pets, books, friends. I'm ready to leave, but he has cancer. <gasps> and I feel guilty. <laughs> he is clear right now, but it will come back. How does she know? It's like she's rooting for it. I don't want to stay. Life is too short to live this way. He has a great support system with his family. They would take care of him. My health has been affected by him and his terrible mm-hmm. attitude. What do I do? Signed, worn out. Wife. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. Anybody else experiencing this? Well so if I'm hearing what she's saying, that whole in sickness and in health, health that that's out the window. She's had enough, man. He has beaten her down. She's like a victim. One side of the story. One true. Yeah. What's his side of the story though? Well, I don't know because you know, dear Abby is right, one sided. Right, for forlorn women. But um, the cancer piece, if you're, I mean, you know, <coughs> excuse me. Uh-oh. No, I'm, I'm, I'm getting emotional. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so I remember the scorn that was heaped on Newt Gingrich, heaped on, more recently, Albert Pujols for going ahead with a divorce when their uh, respective wives were sick, right? Oh, that's right. So, what about this? What? I mean, I love that. <laughs> I still love that. He's clear right now, but it will come back. If she's not an oncologist, then she's just rooting for it. Just, I mean, right. come on, it will come back. But but he has cancer, and so now she she feels a pangs of guilt. Well, maybe she should. Maybe it's inappropriate. Maybe. The woman who divorces the husband, the the wife who divorces the husband when he's sick, should receive the same scorn within her social circles that uh, Gingrich and Pujols received from the public writ large, don't you think? Yeah, I have a friend whose um, dad divorced the mom and she had MS and was in a wheelchair. And people are like, how could you? Everybody in the neighborhood, that's that's so cruel. And it's like, what about that? Defended if, it by saying, no, it's not he needed to leave her. Because she was miserable, and she made his life miserable, and everybody else's life miserable. So just live alone. Hmm. Yeah, it's tough though. If there's an infirmity, like for me, I would have no problem. Not that oh, this yeah. Happened. I mean, I mean, like, like they toots, uh, your stuff's at the curb. If you if you develop a little bit of a hitch, you know, if you if you start limping, yeah, then you're. I mean, you're done. <laughs> you're so. Cruel. No, that's another reason why you're single. Well, no. but this is a hey, this is all uh, you know laid laid down up front. So I mean, oh, okay. everybody knows what time it is. You know, you gotta you gotta stay with. It's like it's it's a part it's of like, the prenup. It's like uh, you know the contracts you used to have at NBC when you were a television reporter. It's like you have to stay within a certain weight. Oh, uh, we so you, you didn't you? I did not have to sign that. No, what, did Ron Majors? My, did Ron Majors have weight. to sign it? <laughs> Did Dick yeah. K have to sign it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, clearly not. That's not grass. No, but you. But that's a that's no, that, a real that is thing. A thing. No, that is a thing, though. 
Yeah. Yep. And you have to ask them if you want to dye your hair a different color. You have to ask them for their. That's why I would recite my own vows to make sure that I enunciated all of the pre-qualifications just Uh for, you know, so I had witnesses there. In addition to obviously it'd be stipulated in writing with attorneys present. Uh Uh-huh. Semantic. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. But I don't know if I were her. I mean, she sounds desperate. She sounds like she's at the end of a rope. She sounds miserable because he made her miserable, according to her. And you I, want would, to hear what, I would leave them. Well, you and dear Abby are uh, on the same wavelength. Oh, we are? Good. Maybe dear dear worn-out wife, writes dear Abby, what you do now is consult a lawyer, pack your bags, and leave before he worsens. Don't, do not expect your husband to be grateful for any of the efforts you have made on his behalf during the course of your marriage. During the time you were dating, he hid from you the fact he was a verbal abuser. Well, is complaining being a verbal? Uh, now you know he was a fraud. Don't feel guilty for protecting yourself and reclaiming your life. One side, of the, I mean, again, one side of the story here. Right. Uh, you know, dear Abby, uh, of course she, you know, ba- jumps on the the chick's bandwagon right out of the. Of course she does. I mean, that's what she does. Um. Also, this uh, now on this other side, when somebody like uh, this woman who wrote to dear Abby leaves, and then she's back out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I moved in with my platonic soulmate after divorce. You don't need men. I run into a lot of this. Maybe it's just me. Best friends Marissa Baker and Patty Kulak say they're platonic soulmates, insisting they don't need a man to be happy. The pair from Naples, Florida, uh, met at uh, Marissa Baker, the 30-year-old's birthday party, New Year's of 2021. She noticed that Patty was down in the dumps. They opened up revealing that she and her husband had recently split mm-hmm. and she and then uh, Patty says to Melissa she welcomed me with open arms this girl who only really knew my husband was the most supportive person I could have imagined a few months later Melissa went through her own divorce and then she went back and leaned on Patty Marissa checked in with me every six every day for six months and then and then that six month mark hit and she asked if it was okay and I and I, and I said yes, and she said, "Well, I'm not. If, if I was okay, I'm not." I asked what was wrong. Blah blah blah. I'm getting divorced for the second time. <clears throat> uh, can I move in? Uh-oh. I said yes. We've oh, been inseparable no. ever since. Oh, it's like Laverne and Charlie. Uh, more like the Bouvier sisters, but okay. yeah, yeah, okay. Laverne, but they're and not Charlie. lesbians, right? That. They're not lesbians. They're just friends, and it's platonic, and yeah, that's a new normal. A lot of people are doing that. Moving the platonic. In. After you well, get divorced to move in with somebody? I mean, is this permanent or is this uh, temporary? It sounds... This is how it goes. Okay. First, you get the money from the ex-husband. <laughs> then you move to Naples. Then you get to the platonic soulmate. If I could paraphrase Tony Montana. That's the... Uh, Greg and Schomburg here on Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning, Dan and Amy. Hey, Amy. If Dan would ever get married and enunciate every all his proclamations from the altar, could you imagine the look on the minister's face of bewilderment saying that, okay, we're going to have to take a break of minimally of an hour to look up everything in a dictionary, and we'll be back to you in a minute. Yeah, plus the, the horror of thanks for whatever poor woman was at the altar with me. That I mean, the entire si- okay. her entire side would be... In, in open revolt. They'd be like pulling her off the altar. All I know is if you ever get married, can I be the flower girl? Oh, my gosh. You'd be, that would be the oldest flower girl in <gasps> wedding history. Hey! Wouldn't it? Yeah. 
You, it's always for because I mean, it's. I mean, I don't. Well, I don't know. Now it's always everything, for the kids. All the definitions have changed. It's for kids or but dogs. Maybe I maybe I identify as a kid right now. Right. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Kids or dogs or adults. And... Have you haven't you seen, you see like that the pet will do? Have you seen those weddings where the pet yeah, does I'm... it? They tie it to the pet and yes, it's bizarre. But you know, people are but people love the animals. Yeah. You would have Hayek at your wedding. What are you talking about? My best man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll dot it out. And he'll have a ring on his collar, Dan, because he's your best man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'll be the day. Uh, all right, so uh, nobody nobody wants to, you know, this is, this is difficult, and I understand why married people don't want to wade into this. Um, but nobody wants to tackle the question if uh, the other one, if, you, if things are a little shaky and then the other one gets sick, that's your opportunity to, Hit the bricks. I think we should ask Mike Scott because he's been happily married for how many? I years? know what Mike Scott's answer would. I know no, what Mike Scott's no, answer. No, Mike. Would. I'm talking name? about less honorable people than Mike Scott. I want to hear somebody say, "I'm out." Mike Thank Scott's you, sir. Not say that. Thank yeah. you, sir. Oh, wait, how long have you yeah. been? Your married? payments in the mail. Yeah. Hey, Mike, how long have you been married? Thirty-six years. Oh my gosh. Good. For and you. I think that's wonderful. I don't know what the question is. I was just help me out. How long you were married? Yeah. And what's the question? Oh, wow. How can how can the uh, how can the long marital bliss that I have encountered in my life, thanks okay. to my beautiful wife, help mm-hmm. you solve this problem? <laughs> <laughs> yes, boy, that well, it's is a woman who's is... worn down by her husband who complains all the time, but he has cancer, so she doesn't want to leave him. Well, that statement should... alone is a, that's rhetorical artistry right there from th- Mike Scott. Yes. <laughs> Doctor Phil, nice. Doctor yes. Phil is in. Yeah, <laughs> she should she should stay with that. Man until, until his untimely passing, <laughs> and uh, celebrate his life, and then after a certain amount of time, move on with hers. What is the appropriate mourning period for uh, getting back out there? It depends. Is she Ooh. in Florida or is she in Illinois? <laughs> Does that matter? Does that matter? <laughs> Florida might be two weeks <laughs> or yeah. less. Well, Here. yeah, because you're on the clock. That's you're right. Saying. You're on yeah. the clock in Florida. Yeah, and there's competition there. Yeah. That's oh, there true. is. I went to yeah. a funeral once. An elderly uh, woman had died, and his, her husband was getting hit on at the funeral by other elderly women who wanted him. No thanks. Yeah. You well, watching yeah. this, going, ladies, well, don't be so desperate. Please. I mean, well, really, that, you're in your 80s. Come on. Well, that, that they're really on the clock, and <laughs> yeah. he probably had a lot of money. Oh yeah, they did. No, it was it was yeah. up in. Uh, that's in, the in Kettleworth. It was. In a, yeah. Well, well <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a generational wealth. You better jump on that. Once in a lifetime. Yeah. All right. So let's see. What have we learned today? Yes. Um, why Dan Proft is single is because, well, I mean, there's so many reasons, but just this specific one is because he would, uh, he he would he would walk from a difficult health situation in a marriage. Although I don't think I actually would. So that's a little. I don't bit. think you would either. I don't. I would. I wouldn't. I would. Uh, Wait for the untimely passing, as you say. Maybe yeah. hasten it. Maybe do my best to hasten. I'm kidding. <laughs> Text messages kidding. coming in. Maybe she should bl- blank up and make dinner. Maybe yeah. she should iron yeah. his shirts. Yeah, yeah, maybe stop complaining if she was doing her wifely duties. Yeah. It's comments like that, why Dan Proft is single, I think. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. And that's another reason why Dan Proft is single. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. 
top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Good piece from our friends uh, Samuel Abrams and Joel Kotkin over at RealClearPolitics.com. The rise of the single, woke, and young Democrat female. The whole conversation we've, well, been having for years, but uh, in particular part since the November 8th midterms, with the focus on the Dobbs decision and the abortion issue is driving the female vote that led to Republican underperformance and so forth. It's just, and as I've been arguing, it's just so much more complicated than that singular issue. And you have to really get into the cross tabs when it comes to the female vote. It is hardly monolithic. There are great differences uh, in political persuasions socioeconomically, uh, demographically by age and region. Um, the attitudes, are, are, you know, uh, age and, and thus generation as well. And then, of course, married versus single. Uh, so let's get into it as uh, challenging as I find this topic. Sam Abrams, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute as well. Sam, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, the rise of the single, woke, and young Democrat female. What um, is a conservative guy to do short of having to marry one of them to get them to turn, <laughs> to turn them around? The, the the intro was really fantastic, and I, that 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 you know you, you hit that nail on the head with that very very question. You know, after uh, the the November elections, we tried to figure out what the heck is going on and where support is and where it isn't for the GOP. And we discovered men, they lean to the right. They're, you know, married, unmarried, they're, they're GOP supporters. When we look at women, uh, I think you, you called it exactly correctly. Um, many women support the GOP in particular, married women in particular, older women. Um, what we discovered very quickly, though, was that younger single women are breaking very hard for, for the Democrats right now. And um, that's a problem, not just because it's they're, they're breaking for the Democrats, but what underlies the reason that they're breaking for the Democrats? And, and that's the cultural shift that we're really trying to talk about. This is a group uh, in society that's getting bigger. We have growing numbers of single women who are not getting married, who are not having children, and they are becoming increasingly liberal, and they are becoming the ones who are pushing the Democrats to take more and more extreme positions against our traditional institutions. They're not supporting families. They're not supporting uh, parental choice in schools, all the issues that uh, those of us on the right care uh, deeply about right now. But, I mean, the feminist approach is, you know, you can take care of yourself. You don't need a man. You don't need a, a child. And don't you think the Democratic Party embraces that? Uh, they shouldn't. They shouldn't. And the numbers show that most Americans actually don't uh, believe in, in, in that. Uh, no one is saying that you can't have some independence. Of course, everyone should have some independence. But it's, it's what I view right now is sort of an immature view of the world. Um, you can have it all, but not have it all. You can, you know, um, have not make commitments. You don't have to have children. You don't have to realize that you have to give a little to be in a healthy society. It's not all about you all the time. And if you come to our college and university campuses where I am right now, um, look at the messaging these younger folks are getting. The messaging is, is you can have it all. You don't need kids. You don't have family. You don't need families. You don't need to make a trade-off for anything. And people should just be giving you things. This is really, uh, you know, not a healthy view about society and not going to lead to, uh, you know, one that I would want to, uh, you know, raise my own kids in. Well, exactly. And so, you know, when Ari Fleischer said uh, over the weekend, talking about uh, Kamala Harris's uh, selective editing of the uh, Declaration of Independence, the preamble, 
um, he said, you know, um, but, uh, you know, by this, he was critical of her appropriately. So, but he said, by the same token, you know, thinking about this politically, Republicans needed to think about how to appeal to, uh, to, to pro-choice centrist women. And what I'm, uh, what I, what I believe, and I'd be interested in your take from the research you and Joel Kotkin did is the idea that you can just say, okay, all right, we'll give you the first trimester. And that's going to bring these uh, single, these young single uh, hard left women who've been indoctrinated at college campuses running to the GOP is pure folly. It is so much bigger than that. And their radical pro-abortion position is a, is a manifestation of something larger. No, I, I completely agree. Um, first trimester, second, third, doesn't matter. That's not what's going on. That's a small part of it, but it's not all of it. And, and what I think people need to remember is that when you step on a college or university campus today, it's overwhelmingly women. Men are disappearing. I think we've talked about that, that yeah. more and more women are uh, – men are 60-40, right? Undergrad degree, 60-40. Yeah, and if you're at a place like Sarah Lawrence, where I am right now, it's even higher than that. Uh, of course, this is traditionally a women's school. Um, however, you know, men are being forced out of this. So we're not talking about just the abortion issue. There is a much deeper cultural issue going on, and this is why Joel and I wanted to talk about this so deeply, which is this is a rejection of traditional norms. This is a, tradi- a rejection of traditional institutions, the very institutions that you know, have built this country. What has helped build this country? It's a rejection of faith. It's a rejection of um, community at large. It's a rejection of needing family and support. And it's a rejection of saying, look, this is not just pure transactional. There are, you know, you know, I pay for this, you pay for that, you do this for me, I do that for you. This is about these norms of, of reciprocity and norms of support that are just gone. And, you know, this is the toxicity that we see being taught regularly on college and university campuses well, today uh, by the administrators. And then the women leave and bring this into the workforce. Uh, and they're not marrying. They're not uh, coupling off. Well, what are the economics of singleness? So the the economics of singleness, this is something we, we see quite, quite a bit, um, is that people are struggling, right? I mean, you know, people are better off when they are married for the most part. You you know, if you have two family, two people working, the, the, the costs become uh, more affordable. Um, the other thing I, I want to mention with the singleness, which uh, is important with your lead, is that there is a very big geographic component to this, and that is that we see this support in urban centers. This is uh, very much like Sex in the City from a number of decades ago, oh, yeah. where you have these single women right. moving to these urban cores. This is not where most Americans want to be, by the way. The research that Joel and I have done for quite a while is showing that there is a continued exodus from our cities. So what we're seeing is almost an amplification effect, where most Americans are rejecting the extreme left politics that we're seeing in most of our urban cores. Families and even single folks on the right want to live in suburbs and, quite frankly, exurbs and rural areas. They can do that now. We have the technology to do that. People like that. They like the space. Uh, so what we're seeing is this echo chamber where you have these single women. They're moving to these urban cores. Um, you know, they're talking amongst themselves. And it's sort of ramping up in intensity. Uh, so you're now surrounded by this echo chamber of people saying, we reject these norms. We don't need men. We're going to do our thing. We're going to rent these small apartments. We're going to go have our brunch. Uh, our avocado toast and the like, uh, which I actually do like personally. Um, And, uh, you know, it's it's just it's it's getting weirder and more extreme. And and this is uh, a group we need to pay a lot of attention to. Uh, Abortion is one thing. uh, But, uh, you know, it's a rejection of these other institutions and faith and family wholesale 
in this rhetoric that we need to be careful of, too. So I don't just want to be I know your focus on this piece was women, but let's have a larger conversation because I want to be critical of men, too. There's a lot of pee hat men running around that are just as problematic, that are just as deconstructionist, uh, that are just as indoctrinated by postmodernism and rejecting these norms you're talking about. And so on the male side, you know, there's a lot of guys that want uh, a woman who uh, is working, you know, want a woman who's educated and is working and mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. growing the, the, the overall household income because they're Marxist uh, materialists just like the women are. And so they may disagree on whatever, Trump versus Biden, but uh, the the P-hat man will tolerate the uh, shrieking Marxist uh, overeducated wife because, uh, you know, there's money in it. So there's that dynamic going on, too. Maybe that's a little bit of a harsh characterization, but that's what I intended it to be. So but I mean, that you know, what you know, the dynamic I'm talking about. I do. Um, you know, I, we really have to look carefully at some of the stats on that. Um, I'm not so sure how 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 common that actually is. Um, I know you can, there are plenty of folks like me who, who are in dual income households and we make it work. Um, I, I think, you know, another big part of, of this this puzzle is to recognize that if you look at the rhetoric from the single woke female, it's a very selfish rhetoric here, right? It's all about me. It's about what yeah. I want, my needs. It's very therapeutic, you know, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy in there, which has crept, by the way, into our, you know, language in colleges and universities regularly. Um, and what it does is it, 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 it focuses you away from looking outside, but looking only inside about what's best for you. Um, you know, these other institutions say, yes, what you care about, what you need matters. It absolutely does. But you have to give a little bit of yourself, too. When you have kids, you do that. Your kids come before you. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Sometimes they come before the career. When you're married, you, you, it's not all about you. You have to make trade-offs. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the problem here is that, the, that a lot of these women don't see it. They're not being taught that. It's being amplified in these pockets uh, where Democrats just have very powerful, loud voices. But 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 I mean, on the the, the, the male side, I mean, the, these are there's a lot of godless men, too. And yep. even though society has now oriented uh, the family away from being able to support themselves on one income, and that's a larger problem, too, uh, of government. Yep. But, but but there are not enough men that say, you know, um, look, I, I you can be educated and partners in this and it's 50 50 and all that. But we're getting married to have a family. And when uh, you have kids, um I want you to be the primary caregiver, so you're staying home and I'm working and we're going to make that work. Who says yeah, that? The problem is, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have good data on this. We, this, this, you know, what you raise is a really good point. Um, I really like to say I don't know, but I'm happy to say it when I don't have good data on that. We just don't have great survey data on that. Um, mm-hmm. But now that you mentioned it, I think we should do it, and uh, I think we will. All right, good. You know, let's let's, let's uh, you know, create. I'm, here. I'm well. I'm a feminist. Really, you know. I'm a feminist, <laughs> so I want the men to be uh, held to account too. Um, so uh, the the other thing is with going back to the 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 single uh, the, the single uh, younger single Democrats, females. Um, so, what do they want other than just they just like you you were describing? They just want things handed to them. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to that. I can have everything on my terms on my timeline. But but what do you think has any appeal to get them off of that? Are we just to sit back and wait for a great religious awakening again? Or is there somebody that can deprogram them or something? 
So I would argue, and again, this is not based on great data because we don't have it. So thank you again for asking about some of this because we can look into this and we can really dig deep and get some better answers on this. Um, in my experience, working with thousands of them as, as a college professor uh, in New York and around the country, in many cases, they don't know. It's reactionary anger. It's yeah. there being, you know, this is this is the echo chamber we've talked about so often saying you've been harmed. This is the victimization. You've been harmed. You're entitled to this. You should be doing that. Uh, and the world is against you. Therefore, push back. But when you dig just a little deeper, they don't even know what they want at all. Uh, and we do have great data showing that married people, for the most part, are, are happier and more content in the long run. We, we've seen data that show that having kids can be very frustrating and, and stressful for periods, but on the whole leads to greater life satisfaction. We have those great longitudinal studies that show that. Um, so a big part of this deprogramming you know, has to take place in the workplace, has to take place uh, in, you know, with diversity offices shutting down, or if they exist, stop you know, spewing the, the, this leftist uh, you know, propaganda, has to stop occurring at the university and college level. And, and honestly, it has to stop uh, at the uh, high school and middle school level, too, where we're getting this messaging and uh, very, very powerfully and very dangerously as well. He is Sam Abrams, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute as well. The rise of the single, woke, and young Democrat female at rearclearpolitics.com. I'll tweet it out, too, because it's a really good piece. Sam and uh, our friend Joel, great work as always. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you. They join us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Dan and Amy, uh, yeah, the conversation uh, with Sam Abrams is uh, really interesting, and it's there's a lot there. But one of the things that I think is an important takeaway: they don't know. Okay, so they're on this track. They've been told these things throughout their schooling years. They believe them. They're entitled. So, so how do you engage them? How do you get them to consider an alternative viewpoint? Um, what what do they actually want? They don't know. They don't know. Right. So if that's true, it speaks to the case I make all the time and the failure you see from the Republican Party all the time. Taking positions, arguing about positions rather than presenting arguments. Big difference. Arguing about a position, presenting an argument. The argument about a position is, should we be pro-life or, or should we allow for abortion in the first trimester? Should we just focus on uh, late-term abortions and pro notification? Those are positions. But you've already lost the argument. So you think you're going to bring them back by distinguishing your position from their position, the position they've adopted? The, the left is so far uh, upstream so much farther upstream by the time that we enter, it's lost. And then we think we're going to win based on comparable positions on a particular issue rather than saying we have to make an argument that starts with the why and explains the what that does the dot connecting for people that are not good at connecting dots that presents an alternative way of thinking, not just an alternative position that's been staked out. That's why all of the postmortem about, oh, the Republican Party needs to just be more pro abort or the Republican Party needs to nominate more women or something. You're missing the point. 
And Sam, the uh, the data that Sam Adam, uh, Sam Abrams and, and Joel Kotkin put together in this piece on young single leftist women really speaks to that. You have to make a case. You have to put it together, present it in total, not just run into the arena after uh, the other side has already won the crowd. And that's what we do too often, particularly in issues where some of us are uncomfortable discussing it and they're not uncomfortable. Uh, they're okay. It's okay for them to talk in absolutes, but we cannot talk in absolutes. That's a, that, that's you're already conceding defeat. You're not you're not going to present an alternative viewpoint, an alternative way of considering the issue, considering the larger societal implications. That's where the Republican Party falls down. Well, how and, can it change? I mean, well, I mean, you got to you got to make the you got to have standard bearers that make these arguments that present evidentiary cases with an, some emotional appeal. Uh, I mean, there's a reason that so many women have been persuaded to be pro-life. I mean, the pro-life movement is led by women. You saw hundreds of thousands of women on the wall on the mall in Washington uh, last weekend. There's a reason they were there. They've been persuaded and they're not all they don't necessarily come from all come from a religious foundation or a, a, a traditional nuclear family. They've been persuaded. This is why uh, uh, people like Abby Johnson, who have the experience of being in a Planned Parenthood mill and then talk and then, you know, what she saw, the scales fall from her eyes. So the conversion stories are powerful, but it's not just a conversion story. It's then the underlying argument you're making about what makes sense. What side of these divides do you really want to be on? Do you really want to be remembered as, as having stood on? Those are the kind of challenges we need to present rather than sort of apologizing for who we are and the position we have and trying to be mitigated by saying, OK, we'll only go halfway. That is not persuasive. And so you're not persuading. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM 560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.